Welcome to Season 2 of The Advocast, presented by the Advocates for Human Rights. All right, well, I think we can get started. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jennifer Prestholt. I'm Deputy Director of Beer at the Advocates for Human Rights, where I also direct our International Justice Program. We're really pleased to talk about this very um, timely issue and talk about the local, national, and global response to the uh, crisis, the human rights crisis in Afghanistan. I am joined by my colleague, Sarah Brennis, who is the director of our Refugee and Immigrant Program, and Elizabeth Lacey, who is a program assistant with our Women's Human Rights Program, as well as our International Justice Program. So I'm gonna start by talking about um, the international community response. Now, as the, you've probably all been following in the news, how the, as things unfolded um, in Afghanistan with the withdrawal of NATO and the US forces and, and the surprisingly uh, fast takeover of the Taliban, um, the international community response was, response was unfortunately very limited. Um, the UN political organs especially were disappointing in, in their response. The Security Council did pass a resolution, but it was weakened by abstentions by both Russia and China. And of course, Russia has a long, had a long history in Afghanistan before, um, before the US got involved. Um, at the Human Rights Council, which is an area where the, where the advocates has a, an active um, practice in international advocacy, the Human Rights Council held a special session in August and did pass a resolution uh, that was adopted without a vote. That was um, Human Rights Council Resolution S311. And um, essentially it was very disappointing because it was a weak consensus resolution. Um, it was adopted without a vote and it called for further reports to the Human Rights Council, but it failed to establish an independent mechanism to monitor ongoing crimes under international law and human rights violations. So that's what um, the High Commissioner for Human Rights within the UN system and a number of other um, you know, large non-governmental organizations and, and much of the human rights community was, was pushing for, and that didn't happen. Um, but in terms of the, the continuing reports to the Human Rights Council in the, in the session that just happened in September and early October, the High Commissioner did report on, uh, give an oral report on the update in, um, in Afghanistan. Um, and um, the Human Rights Council did vote to appoint a special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Afghanistan. And that's important because it is a dedicated mechanism to monitor and report um, to, back to the Human Rights Council. So it raises the level within the UN human rights system. Other bodies within the UN system have been much more active and engaged. And um, just to give you a, a couple of examples, the UN special procedure mandate holders, which are independent experts that are appointed by the Human Rights Council to either look at a country situation in, in this situation in Afghanistan, um, or a thematic, um, a thematic mandate. A, a large group of special procedures mandate holders in August called on member states um, in pretty strong terms to take immediate and preventative action to prevent further human rights abuses from happening. The UN specialized agencies, um, many of them are on the ground and actively working in Afghanistan. So UN Women, 
um, is obviously working on the rights of women's and women and girls, the UN High Commission for Refugees, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, the World Health Organization, a number of other um, agencies continue to operate in Afghanistan and are trying to address the humanitarian crisis there. And the UN is committed to continuing to do that work, um, but they are facing some um, pretty uh, pretty dire funding issues. There have been some examples of private corporations stepping in. Um, you know, interestingly enough, the Lego um, Lego Corporation has been um, providing a lot of money um, to help with some of the, the assistance to refugees um, and internally displaced persons within Afghanistan. But there's a lot. Um, there's there's a big gap in terms of available funding. So um, finally, the, the Secretary General and the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan that's run under, under the auspices of the Secretary General has committed to be involved. And their focus is really on getting humanitarian assistance to all of the areas in Afghanistan, as well as providing assistance to women and girls. So that's where we are in terms of the international community response, perhaps not surprising that it's been slow and not as strong as we would have liked to have, as we would like to see. But I also want to talk about the current situation uh, in Afghanistan. Since the conflict and, our, and withdrawal of U.S. forces in August, um, thousands of civilians have been killed, including being killed by having been targeted by the Taliban, and Islamic state attacks, as well as from U.S. and former government airstrikes. That conflict has been worsened by a drought that's happening, so a, a natural disaster, and that has caused increases in displacement, which has overwhelmed some of the humanitarian efforts. And the country's economic system and health and education sectors are, are in near total collapse. Food prices have risen, banks are closed, there's limited access to cash, and then again, the international community response in terms of uh, freezing assets and um, and issuing sanctions has had um, has had an impact on on the economic system and, and access to food. But I think it's really important to remember that the country was in a near crisis even before the Taliban takeover. More than 30 percent of of the country was facing acute food insecurity before the Taliban takeover. Now that's estimated to be over 40%, but serious problems existed before and they've only gotten um, go, only gotten worse. And UNICEF reported in December of 2020 that almost half of the children under five, so that was approximately 3.1 million out of 7 million children in Afghanistan were acutely malnourished and in need of, of um, acute nutrition services. So there were serious problems that were um, that were there before all of this happened and now it's and now it's gotten worse. So um, major human rights concerns that have been highlighted by the High Commissioner for Human Rights in her recent report as well as, um, as some of the independent experts include reprise, reprisals against former security personnel and civil servants and their families. Um, the Taliban has reportedly been doing house-to-house -house searches, um, even though there were public statements that they were going to grant amnesty to um, former former uh, civil servants and, and security personnel. Um, but they've been doing house-to-house -house searches, arbitrary detention, um, and extrajudicial killings. 
Um, we don't have good information about the numbers on that, but there's there's um, there's good information that it has been happening. Um, Taliban forces have also reportedly been using increasing violence against protesters um, and journalists that are covering um, peaceful protests, in including using live ammunition, uh, whips and batons. And there have been limitations on freedom of movement, with very few refugees allowed to leave after the last um, after the, the last airlifts happened. Um, of particular concern, though, is the approximately 3.5 million internally displaced persons within Afghanistan. And there's also been increasing targeting of ethnic and religious minority groups within within Afghanistan. So lots to worry about. And Elizabeth is going to talk now about, in a little more detail, about the human rights violations against uh, women and girls. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, as many of you are, are likely aware, um, the situation for women in Afghanistan has rapidly deteriorated since the Taliban takeover in August of this year. But as Jennifer mentioned, it was already um, starting to be a dire situation. Um, initially, the Taliban promised that they would uphold women's rights, even though um, even that they would permit women to work and girls to go to school. Um, but that promise is in stark contrast with the reports of what is actually happening on the ground. Um, since August, the Taliban has issued and carried out several orders that directly violate women's rights. Um, as Fazia Kufi, former Republic peace negotiator and first woman deputy speaker of parliament put it at the UN Security Council, since they have taken over, there has been a systematic exclusion of women from the social and religious sphere. So with respect to women in the workforce, the Taliban fired all women in leadership positions in the government, and they also replaced the Ministry for Women's Affairs with the Ministry for Vice and Virtue, um, which housed formerly housed the religious police who uh, would carry out beatings and other reprisals against women who were seen walking without a male companion or not wearing a burqa. The Taliban have also prohibited most women from returning to work, and women fear leaving the house even if they're still allowed to go to work. Um, amidst reports of officials going door to door looking for them, women lawyers fear that the Taliban will kill them for their work in the last 20 years. Women judges similarly fear for their lives. Some have escaped the country while others still live in fear of confrontation with the men that they put in jail who have now been released by the Taliban. Further, during the past 20 years, um, as Jennifer mentioned, there is kind of an economic crisis going on as well. Um, and many households over the past 20 years have become reliant on women's salaries. And now as women are barred from returning to work, this has become a financial crisis for many families, especially single mothers. Um, the Taliban similarly has not delivered on its promise to keep girls in school. They have closed several girls' school and this fall, they have permitted only boys to return to secondary school. Taliban officials have also banned co-education, which will create another barrier for many more girls to return to school. According to the UN, 4.2 million children in Afghanistan are not in school, including 2.6 million girls. Though the Taliban has said that their restrictions on girls' education are only temporary, the initial ban has made the future of girls' education uncertain at best. Women attending university may face a similar fate. Several universities remain closed to everyone, not just women. 
Um, professors and other university personnel have also left their positions in droves, fearing a Taliban crackdown. And the regime has begun replacing university leadership with individuals that will carry out its own agenda, which probably will include not allowing women to return to school. One professor was quoted in the New York Times as saying that his students were, quote, disheartened, especially the girls, because they know that they will not be allowed to go back, unquote. Outside of school and work, the Taliban has also cracked down on women athletes and artists. Uh, one woman volleyball player was allegedly killed this month. Uh, some, like the Afghan girls' soccer team, have been able to escape. They and their families have now settled in Portugal, and that's about 80 of them, I think, total. One Afghan woman summed up the, the whole situation in a recent foreign policy interview, saying, life seems impossible for women. human rights defenders, including women, also face violent reprisals under the new regime. Even before this uh, takeover, since 2020, um, Afghan women journalists and activists have been targeted and killed more frequently. Between September 2020 and May 2021 alone, 17 human rights defenders were killed and nine journalists as well. And now women human rights defenders are at even greater risk. Some have received death threats and fear leaving their homes. Some have tried to escape the country and others have been killed. Similarly, journalists trying to cover resistance to the Taliban also face retaliation in the forms, uh, form of threats, beatings, and torture. For instance, Taliban officials recently beat two journalists who were covering a small women's protest against the regime. Journalists have either fled or told women journalists to go home out of fear of violence. In fact, 70% of media outlets have closed in the months since the Taliban rose to power. And this is certainly an alarming blow to independent media in the country and will only put human rights defenders, women, and any other opponents of the Taliban at more risk of abuse. Now I'm going to pass uh, the baton to Sarah, who's going to talk about our legal clinics. To start off, I'm just going to talk a little more broadly about um, the airlift and um, the evacuation and, and the spaces on the bases and um, the disbursement of individuals resettling across the United States and a little bit about um, what we know about some of the legal options that individuals had. And then later in the program, we'll talk more about our um, efforts with the legal clinic and um, advocacy opportunities. Uh, so as many of you know, um, the US airlifted over 100,000 individuals out of Afghanistan this past summer. Um, and they've been making their way to the United States through mostly through um, what are called lily pads on in other parts of the globe, uh, and about half of the individuals have um, been dispersed on a number of different military bases throughout the U.S. And there's a a map here that shows you where those are. The closest to us and the one with the largest number of individuals is in Fort at Fort McCoy in Wisconsin. Um, 
where there are about 13,000 evacuees that are that are um, staying there as um, guests of the U.S. government um, and are receiving some um, assistance getting uh, situated with their legal status, uh, as well as um, receiving services to be prepared preparing them to be um, resettled in other parts of the United States. And there's a another map here that shows you some of the destinations. Some of the key destinations are, are places where there are um, a, a, a large Afghan community already. And that's where a lot of people are wanting to go, uh, a lot in California, Texas, Virginia. But that also means that those areas are um, pretty much at capacity in terms of offering resettlement services. Initially, um, there were some limitations in uh, mm -hmm. the services that would be provided to individuals, but now um, the federal government has, has offered the 90-day um, resettlement services for, for Afghan evacuees, the majority of which are, are entering as um, with humanitarian parole, uh, which I'll talk about in, in a moment. Um, there's some things that the U.S. government is is doing well and trying to prioritize and 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 really honor um, the commitment to um, carry carry through with the evacuation and allow people to be in the United States. Um, the 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 swiftness of the whole process um, didn't allow for people to be processed as refugees in, in many instances. Um, individuals who are processed outside the United States as refugees spend a long time waiting until they can actually come into the United States. So the U.S. Um, used um, a tool called humanitarian parole to allow people to enter the United States on what is really a, a quasi-legal status. It essentially allows people to apply for a work permit, uh, and then they issued parole for two years. So they're able to stay in the U.S. temporarily for two years while they um, assess what legal options they may have to remain in the U.S. Um, or um, decide if um, they, they would like to go elsewhere, which um, we found in speaking with some people on the basis they didn't intend to come to the U.S. They had family actually in other parts of the world. Um, so that's um, one of the, the good things is they issued the humanitarian parole. The challenge is that it is temporary. And so um, many of the individuals have to decide if they can apply for something, um, some permanent status now. Sometimes people are coming, they're highly skilled and there's employment-based options that they can pursue. Um, others might be applying for asylum and that's another uh, space where the U.S. government has set some priorities to process individual Afghans who are applying for asylum um, and have said they committed to processing them in 45 days. Um, our understanding is there's been maybe less than 10, 10 individuals who have applied um, so far. I know here in our jurisdiction, if someone applies for asylum, they're not even conducting interviews yet. So um, we'll see um, if that ends up being uh, carried out in the way that 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 it was um, promised. But I think one of the the points of concern um, that we have certainly is that uh, well. It, there's a priority on processing Afghan applications. There's also a very big backlog uh, for other individuals who've applied for um, 
asylum and are waiting for their cases to be heard. So um, while the prioritization is is important um, I, from our perspective and, and knowing that we are um, committed to working with a large number of clients already uh, receiving services from us, knowing that um, sometimes there's significant trade-offs. So in addition to the options that Sarah is talking about for Afghan arrivals, we are also working with partners to advocate for Congress to urgently pass the Afghan Adjustment Act. This legislative option would provide a special path to apply for permanent residence for Afghan nationals who have been impacted by the U.S. withdrawal. It's crucial because U.S. law currently would require thousands of Afghans who are arriving in the U.S. to apply for asylum if they didn't qualify for some other form of status, such as through family members or the special immigrant visa program. Yet asylum processing, as Sarah mentions, takes years and is a very complex process. It's also incredibly resource intensive for the U.S. government, as well as for pro bono organizations like, like ours, and it risks re-traumatizing individuals. And many of the currently available statuses will leave families separated for years because they don't have an ability to petition or include certain family members. For example, many of the unaccompanied children who were loaded onto planes by desperate parents might not be able to petition for them to come to the U.S. even if they were granted asylum. So we are encouraging Congress to introduce and pass this legislation, which would be far more financially efficient for the U.S. government and better protect these individuals who supported the U.S. and our vision for a better Afghanistan. It's not groundbreaking, and it should be a bipartisan issue. The U.S. passed similar legislation, actually, after the withdrawal from Vietnam, and it's successfully passed other bills that provide a path for citizenship for groups of similarly situated individuals. We have also agreed on the importance of supporting our Afghan allies and sending a strong message that protects U.S. military interests in the future. Our immigration system also comes with really strict vetting processes and biometrics rules that guard against national security and safety concerns. In fact, a military veteran with whom I recently had the pleasure of advocating on this issue with explained to me the extensive vetting process used for his interpreter in Afghanistan someone who would benefit from the AAA and with whom he shared a barrack. In our advocacy, we are asking Republican and Democratic representatives and senators to co-sponsor the act for introduction and passage. And we encourage any of those who are interested to take action by calling Congress and demanding that they introduce and pass the Afghan Adjustment Act. So as I mentioned, many people who come with humanitarian parole can also apply for a work permit. The good news is um, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service on many of the bases, they're, they're helping people complete and start the process um, to uh, process those work permit applications. So that's the good news that while people were on the bases, they were able to fill out the applications. And in many cases, the applications were even approved before people left the military bases. Um, the, the downside is all of the actual work permit cards were sent to um, the International Organization for Migration that's located in DC. So they have just boxes and boxes of work permit cards that now need to be um, sent out to people um, in most cases, they're trying to send them to the um, 
the resettlement agencies once they're leaving. So we're expecting a really significant delay in people actually getting um, their cards that they do need in order to be able to apply for, um, for employment. The other group of individuals that um, uh, were in what we've seen really in the first wave of of um, individuals and families who are leaving the bases are those who were eligible for special immigrant visas that are specifically for individuals who've worked as interpreters or worked for the U.S. government or contractors with the U.S. government while in Afghanistan. It is a extremely complex process. There are several steps um, in the process requiring people to contact their supervisors, um, uh, confirm their contracts, have evidence to show that they worked for the U.S. government. Um, and then typically they would file um, a petition while they were abroad and then be processed at the U.S. Embassy and enter as permanent residents. Um, there was already a significant backlog. This has been uh, a legal avenue for uh, individuals who've worked with the U.S. government in Afghanistan for um, nearly 15 years, um, yet there's about 70,000 applications that are still pending. So, um, And what we saw right before as, as plans were rolling out to evacuate, many people were trying to take some of the steps in the process. There were lawyers helping people um, file the initial paperwork that they needed. But in the departure, um, either, you know, once the embassy was closed, people weren't able to have their interviews. Some people um, lost documentation or lost, lost access to it, uh, particularly using um, email accounts that um, required multi-step verification to phone numbers they can no longer use. Those are some of the issues we're seeing um, working with people at the legal clinic. Or in some instances, they destroyed the documentation that they may have had uh, in order to protect themselves if they were stopped by the Taliban to not have that evidence on their, on their person. Um, so that's another group that, and, and, and really there's a very small number of um, legal organizations and attorneys who have experience working with um, individuals applying for the special immigrant visa. So this is an area where um, there's adaptations to help people continue that process while they're here in the U.S., but it's um, certainly um, a complicated piece and not easy to make referrals for people uh, who are eligible. Um, and then the last thing that I'll mention at this point is also seeing a lot of people, you know, we see families that are together, families have been separated, people, you know, almost everyone uh, we're meeting with has someone back in Afghanistan who is in danger. Uh, and so there's another avenue for individuals here in the U.S. who can sponsor someone and apply for humanitarian parole to allow someone to enter the U.S. Typically, and this is a um, an option, a legal option that's been on the books for um quite a long time. They typically see about 2,000 applications a year. Uh, they're probably close to 10,000 right now with the same amount of staff. So um, that's another, another issue and another complex process uh, for people to try to apply to allow their family members to come here. So those are some of the, the issues um, and challenges that make it really important for people to be able to um, access uh, legal advice in order to know what their current situation is um, and and assess what their options might be in, in the future.
just going to take it back out to the bird's eye view again and, and talk a little bit about how the advocates is reacting to this to this crisis. And again, you know, as I said, we we work on the individual level with the direct legal services, and that's the most immediate um, response. And so Sarah's gonna, we'll come back to Sarah to talk about that. But from the sort of the big picture, how do we deal with the, you know, this long-term intractable uh, human rights situation that has then evolved into a, an extreme crisis? So there's a number of ways that the advocates works to um, try to try to change the underlying human rights conditions that cause people to flee. One of the things that we have um, been doing a lot more recently is um, involving our clients in international advocacy. And this is something that um, we use our, our um, special consultative status at the United Nations in order to bring issues of concern um, up to the international community in many country contexts that can be extremely effective. Um, so we definitely are already considering our options for, um, you know, as we are working with, with asylum clients from Afghanistan, um, working and of course using information with their consent, but um, some of them are human rights defenders and some of them just have uh, direct experience with human rights abuses. And so making sure that that information um, is then documented and communicated um, as part of our international advocacy. I mentioned that we have, um, uh, that, the, the, that now there's a special rapporteur um, on Afghanistan. That's an avenue for providing ongoing information um, not only about situation on the ground in Afghanistan, but also about human rights abuses that might have happened in transit and in um, the U.S. as a receiving country. So that's one opportunity um, to um, to use um, to to use that those client um, client voices. And it's been great to see some of our asylum clients who just because they have crossed a border, you know, doesn't mean that they stop being activists. And so being able to work with them. Um, and empower them to use their voices um, to change the conditions that force them to flee. It's been really, really a fantastic um, area of our, our work. We also have um, done, and this goes back to, you know, more than 10 years ago, we started working with diaspora communities to document human rights abuses on the ground um, in, in, the, uh, their, in the country of origin. And so, um, our first report on that was exclusively based on on human rights fact finding and reporting from members of the diaspora was human rights in Ethiopia through the eyes of the Oromo diaspora, and that was a context where there was little, um, you know, little access to human rights inf um, information on the ground in Ethiopia. So it was literally um, information that people in the Oromo diaspora here in Minnesota were able to get. Um, from their relatives. Um, and so this report has been used in, I don't know how many asylum cases in, in the US and Canada and Europe, but that's also something that we are considering in our response to the crisis um, in Afghanistan, because there, you know, we, Elizabeth and I talked about the, uh, the situation on the ground there and, and um, there's very little information that's coming out um, outside of um, Kabul. So um, being able to, to work with some of these Afghan evacuees to, um, to do the fact finding and, and monitoring and, and documentation, um, I think is gonna be a really important thing.
Yeah, so um, one of the things that Jennifer mentioned was working with partners and NGOs that are on the ground in the countries where we're working um, or the countries that we're kind of monitoring. Um, and so the women's program has partnered with uh, women's NGOs in several countries around the world. We have several partners in countries in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and Northern Africa. And some of those partnerships we've maintained for uh, something like 20 years. Um, that's the example of Bulgaria. For others, we're just beginning our collaboration. And so we work on a range of projects with those partners, including monitoring and documentation, trainings and advocacy at the United Nations and other regional bodies. Uh, for instance, we have conducted a training institute called the Women's Human Rights Training Institute, or WERTI, and that's been going on for several years in partnership with our Bulgarian partners. And through that training institute, we build the capacity of women lawyers and other human rights defenders in the region to document and address human rights violations. The women's program has also worked with in-country partners to an analyze domestic violence laws and provide commentary on ways to improve the laws so that they better protect women from violence and respond to domestic violence. Uh, so in the long term, the advocates remains open to connecting with NGOs, whether on the ground in Afghanistan or in the diaspora, to establish partnerships with them. And this is, again, kind of the really long term view. But by doing so, we can strategize alongside women's rights organizations about ways to galvanize the support of the international community and to build their capacity to do their important work. Um, and I think Sarah is going to talk a little bit more about how we can respond. Great. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about how um, we're responding here. And I think this is a good note. This is a lot of heavy stuff to process and think about the reality um, that's impacting so many individuals. Um, I think one of the silver linings um, is just seeing the response in the state of Minnesota. Um, we are working in partnership with the Minnesota Department of Human Services and the resettlement agencies and other providers um, in order to um, provide assistance to um, the evacuees. So um, the, there is a transitional space that's been set up um, as folks are leaving the military bases and working with resettlement agencies to find more permanent housing. Um, and so we're sharing a space with a medical clinic and um, individuals that are helping apply for people um, uh, for public benefits. So we're holding a legal clinic two times a week to consult with um, individuals and families about their immigration situation to help orient them, help them access paperwork that they need in order to um, assess their legal options, helping them apply for um, a copy of their immigration um, file, um, consider whether it makes sense for them to apply for asylum, um, and, and, and help them understand what it means in many cases for those who have humanitarian parole, um, and then also address some of the more nuanced uh, situations. We have seen just in the haste that um, sometimes people are not given the paperwork that they need when they um, left the bases or, you know, they have an option, but it's really um, changing day to day in terms of how, how um, policies are, 
are being implemented in order to facilitate people's um, applications for relief. So we're part of a number of um, national coalitions just trying to um, continue to follow what's happening. I think um, nationwide, we're really um, uh, ahead of um, many others in having a legal clinic already set up. Um, I think there was a, a, a response in trying to help people get legal orientation at the bases, and that continues to be ongoing. There's a number of organizations and volunteers that are at the different bases and providing people with general information, but just due to the sheer numbers, it's um, extremely uh, challenging to try to give people individual consultation. So uh, many are encouraging people to find legal services once they're in their resettlement cities. Um, and that's exactly what we're doing um, through the legal clinics. So um, we are working with, uh, we've, we've been able to bring on a few uh, temporary staff to help coordinate. Uh, and then also working with a number of volunteers, uh, immigration attorneys who are available to meet with people virtually in order to um, review their documents and, and ask them questions and understand what their legal roles are. Um, so that's been um, something we're in week three of the clinic and um, working out some of the details and, and helping things flow. Um, there's about 60 people that have been resettled in um, in Minnesota, and so we're we're working through connecting with as many of them who are that are interested in um, accessing the legal clinics. Um, and then the other piece is um, the um, the fact that there are a lot of individuals who were already here. They're not part of this evacuee group that's getting services from resettlement, but. In fact, they're in some other, they came to the United States, may have been in some other legal status. Many students um, who are from Afghanistan and are interested in applying for asylum. So we're also meeting with those individuals to assess what their options are, given the changes in the country. Um, and many of them um, seeking, many women that were seeking higher education and um, concern for their safety if they, if they have to return. Uh, at the end of their study. So we're also assisting those individuals and pairing them with volunteer attorneys in order to be able to seek more permanent protection uh, here in the United States. So um, if we have learned anything uh, in our nearly 40 years of experience here at The Advocates, we know that we have to be nimble uh, and respond to emerging needs, but also have to be committed uh, to the long game. So we, you know, we re reflect on the fact that we were nimble um, five years ago when we saw an influx of Central American families and children starting to arrive in 2015 and that continue to come. We more than doubled our, our docket responding to that need. Uh, but right now, five years later, 75% of those cases are, are still pending and we're still assisting volunteers and, and helping um, those individuals that are seeking asylum. Um, and so when we think about the, the families and um, the children, we've seen families evacuated together, families as large as 10 people that are now having to navigate um, what might be straightforward paths to uh, a more permanent status. We're all hoping 
that there is an Afghan Adjustment Act, but that won't just magically make everyone permanent residents. They will have to file an application in order to make that happen. We've also seen individuals that had to leave their entire family behind. And so they're um, trying to figure out how do they move forward? How do they um, provide for themselves um, and also create a path for their for their family? And I think um, what we know is that um, that is even though something might be straightforward, it can be complex, but uh, in any regard, it's not going to be fast. Um, and so we appreciate the support from um, all of you and um, we continue to seek uh, funding from um, funders who are prioritizing this work now, um, which is certainly important, but it will still be important five years from now as we try to um, respond to both this immediate need, but know that people are gonna need us um, for the long-term in order to really see, see their cases through um, in what is um, a, a, a long-term um, process and um, hope to, to, to see, see through the government's commitment to um, provide some safety and security for these individuals that they've evacuated. And um, it will be both long, hard work with individuals as well as advocacy um, to, to hold the US government up to its commitment. Yeah, and I think you you mentioned this before, but um, you know this is a really complicated process. Even when it's it seems like it should be straightforward, um, it's a really difficult a difficult thing. And so I know from it's been a long time since I practiced asylum law, but I remember encountering people. I represented somebody in detained court who was a U.S. citizen, came as a Cambodian refugee, and. Um, and never, you know, who's a minor and never adjusted. And so um, committed a minor crime and ended up spending um, more than three months in detained um, in, in um, ICE detention. So it's the work that you're doing is really important in helping people sort through um, all the different options and making sure that they have that, that legal representation. So thank you for all the work that you and your team are, are doing um, are doing on that. So with that, perfect closing. Um, well, thanks to everyone for joining us tonight. And thanks to all of you for being a part of the human rights movement, because it really does take all of us um, to work together to make, to make change. Thanks for listening to The Advocast, presented and produced by the Advocates for Human Rights. To learn more about The Advocates and what we do, visit theadvocatesforhumanrights.org.